And welcome to Unfrozen, Episode 4. This is Dan Safarik. And I'm Greg Lindsay. How you doing, Dan? I'm doing spectacularly. I am prepping for a conference for my day job, and uh, it's all hands on deck, and the deck is looking conspicuously like the Titanic. Well, you know, it's it's all a, all a matter of reference there. I think things I learned a year ago hosting a you know climate migration conference is that, you know, hold times when it comes to real estate and built environment or everything. Because if your hold time for deck chairs in the Titanic had been, say, two hours, that could have been a very profitable time rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic. And so it's all about uh, short term versus long term there. So, you know, so in the short term, maybe it'll come out fine. But but yes, but, you know, ho- hopefully it won't be as dire as all that. Uh, I hope you're right. And how are how are things in Montreal? It's it's been a hard come down since we were in Italy. You know, drinking champagne at breakfast and bruschetta with speck every morning. That's what I remember there. I, I'm now, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sitting in my pantry with a blanket over my head and you know, nursing a messed up shoulder. And you know, yeah, just uh, it's just back to life here. It seems Venice was but a dream, but so it goes in these times. So so yeah, all in all, things things are good, all things considered. At least, at the very least, I am not living in Charlie Munger's dorm at UC Santa Barbara. Oh my lord. I have, I have seen daylight today, Dan. That's all I can tell you. And that's saying a lot here in Montreal. Let me tell you, where you know my children are at school before the sun rises, and it's only November 4th. Oh lord. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, when I saw that, I was kind of like, that pretty much... So basically, Charlie Munger is Mr. Burns. I mean, this is like something that, that you would make up for the episode of The Simpsons. It's like, <laughs> yes, Smithers, it will be perfect because the students only want to look at their phones anyway. Now they'll have nothing else to look at. Well, isn't am I am I totally mistaken? Or isn't Charlie Munger like Warren Buffett's right hand man as well? So like, not only is he like Mr. Burns, but like he's Mr. Burns to like the permanent child that is Warren Buffett, who like drinks Coca Colas and fizzy sodas and eats ice cream sundays every day when he's not like fueling you know the coal rail infrastructure that will burn the planet to a cinder so there's definitely all of that and like and charlie munger is unrepentant and for those listeners who have not caught up on this charlie munger billionaire donation of 200 million dollars to the university of california at santa barbara the campus with like the most epic views and most beautiful landscape in the entire university of california system and his gift of 200 million dollars to build a dorm in a place where there's a massive housing crisis, I mean, the, you know, basically Santa Barbara is a microcosm intensified of the California housing crisis, which is America's housing crisis. And they're going to build it, but they cannot accept any changes. And the man has turned in the equivalent of like a beehive for humanity with, you know, where 94% of the dorm rooms will not have natural light. And the language involved, and this is the part where I want to come back to, which makes my skin crawl is about, you know, bringing the students together and unplanned encounters and hallways. And it's it's really any of us who ever believed in the notion of like the built environment to encourage serendipity. It's like having it thrown back in our face, like with like acid added to it. But but uh, but yeah, but Dan, it, didn't, it did not go over well. Architecture Twitter was was not amused. And I believe UC Santa Barbara's like architectural, like, you know, critic slash guardian quit over the whole thing too. Or I mean, yeah, what, what, what's the whole story that you've seen? Right. I mean, that's that's my that's my recollection as well. And forgive me for just jumping right into my Mr. Burns impression. I'm, <laughs> I'm practicing it all week without providing the necessary context. It's all about context, man. <sighs> but uh, yeah, apparently the design review board, um, which usually is a pretty powerful organization on a campus, um, one of the chief advisors to that board, uh, who is a principal, I believe, with uh, 
oh, now I forget the name of the firm. It's uh, Leo Daly. He's a principal with Leo Daly, which is, you know, a corporate firm. I mean, and even this guy was like, not sackcloth and ashes here. You know, this is, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. these these are not saints. He's like, I cannot, I cannot, uh, this will not stand. Uh, And, you know, it was presented, I guess, to the panel as a, as a done deal. And I saw some commentary along the lines of, hey, you know, isn't there, aren't there laws about this? Isn't there zoning? And the answer is yes, but they don't apply on university campuses. They can, they have their own system and they can do whatever they want within the confines of that system. Doesn't have anything to do with the municipal code. I I suppose that things like fire exiting and that and the like are, uh, are probably exempt from that. But when it comes to, you know, I guess access to natural light and windows, they can do whatever they like. No, I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely insane. And, you know, I, I think I started to mention there, you know, $200 million gift, the total cost of this project, which would produce four and a half thousand student dorms would be a cost of $1.5 billion, which I think someone pointed out would be a thousand dollars per square foot, which also just says everything about the cost of constructions in California. And you're right, like it, it's it's an accessibility nightmare. Um, I believe, you know, one of the critics pointed out would be the eighth densest neighborhood on the planet, uh, you know, equivalent to Dhaka. A lot of comparisons to Kowloon Walled City, you know, in the former Hong Kong, uh, which was you know, the densest urban environment really of our lifetimes there. But um, but the thing that really jumps out at me about the whole thing is, is, is again, Munger's language about, you know, like why he wants to do this. An amateur architect who produced these plans himself. And, you know, if you look at the renderings, it's like, you know, they would create artificial daylighting and nightlighting and like these, these student carols and, and, you know, and, and yeah, there's two access points to the entire dorm, which, which makes me think, Dan, I had this horrible realization that like the Charlie Munger is an avid reader of Tony Shea's Delivering Happiness, because this is exactly what Zappos did in their former suburban campus in Henderson, Nevada, where there was only one entrance and exit for like the entire campus, which was designed to flow all the employees through it. And this was before Tony got onto the downtown project and like his efforts to remake Las Vegas. But like, but this is, this is like a horrifying parody of this entire literature about like, how do we like force, you know, uncount, you know, unplanned encounters between the students and all these sorts of things. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Big, big, sickening realization here that uh, you know that, that he's taken it to the extreme, or maybe this was always a poison discourse, to say the least. But, but I don't know. But my my favorite take on the entire thing, and there have been many architecture, uh, you know, Twitter came out for this was uh, was Henry Graybar and Slate, who who raised the real hot take of like maybe this is the best we can do now, like you know, in a world of late, 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 late capitalism, where you know, where like you know, California can only solve its housing crisis at any level with like you know, with, with private donor money, like, you know, maybe this is it. Maybe we don't get solutions in an orderly, systematic fashion. We just get the whims of billionaires doing that. I don't know. This is like an architecture problem though, right? Like the client gets what the client wants. Like, how would you solve this? Or like, is there a solution to this? Like who talks the crazy old man off the ledge? I, I think you just wait him out. The guy's 97. Well, I, presumably he's got trust for this. I don't know if they get the $200 million if he, you know, if God forbid something were to happen to Charlie Munger tomorrow, but. I mean, isn't there isn't there someone a little bit younger and crazier with more design sense, like I don't know Kanye, that they can turn to for this money? Well, it's funny you say that because we'll come later in a bit here to like what the crypto bros are up to on this front. But like, but like, yes, yeah, Stan, I'm sure you can find somebody who will like loan you some Ethereum for this. But but no, <laughs> I, I think I think this is is that there. But 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 there is this larger point that like yeah, like you know the, the solutions are uneven and weird, and like you get mega dorms. I mean, it is bizarre. Also, like the the fit between form and you know the fact that like you know again this beautiful natural landscape. 
you know, would have no views whatsoever. And it's not Munger's first time doing this. You know, I believe Harvard Westlake, the private school he's done buildings for and elsewhere. Um, he seems to have a fetish, if that's not too strong a word, for designing private school or, or even just higher education, you know, dormitories. So I don't that know. look like jails and feel like jails. That do, you know, if someone pointed out that like, you know, they would have to re, if they didn't have the university zoning, I believe it was Billy Fleming at UPenn pointed out, they might have to rezone it as institutional slash prison, which really just says it all right there about what he's put up with them. I mean, this uh, is such rich, rich ground. I mean, for, for, for ironic observation uh, and, uh, and tragedy, really breeding tragedy. Uh, because I mean, well, yeah. what, I mean, what, shirt, what bitter you know, irony! Triangle shirtwaist factory fire was another comparison that it was brought up there again. Like, how does it? How does it? You know, you can rezone it anything you want, but how do you escape fire code? Is, is beyond me. Absolutely, and I mean, like, okay, UCSB, where they had an incel who shot up the campus. It's like, do you want to create four thousand incels because that's what you're going to get? Well, or 4,000 incel shooters or 4,000 casualties from incel shooters because you basically have no escape route. No escape. Which, which is very much an American problem, I have to say, being here in Montreal, but it's a true one on the least. But yes, you're absolutely right. And, and then even just the comparison to the fact that anyone would consider it a positive, that it's compared to a cruise ship after everything we've just been through with COVID and you know, cruise ships going around looking for places to dock because they were full of the infected. I mean, it's crazy. Well, it's this, crazy. That's, that is a particularly a good point to pivot there because not just not just any cruise ship, Dan, but Disney cruise ships was Charlie Munger's comparison. And that notion of, you know, of the compressed, the small, the fantastical escaping into other worlds is the perfect time to bring up the other big development since we last hung out, which is the metaverse. Uh, you know, and again, there's no way any of you listening could have escaped this, but in case you have, you know, um, Facebook has been talking about this for a while and, you know, it was, uh, about a week ago taping this, it happened while I was giving a talk to people about the future of cities and literally I told them that Facebook ceased to exist while we were having this conversation that, uh, the, you know, that, uh, Mark Zuckerberg announced formally the company would change its name to Meta, which will cause no one to forget the many lawsuits brought against it for, I don't know, you know, uh, shaming teenage girls about their bodies on Instagram, or more likely just the outright ad fraud that they, you know, that they have uh, perpetuated there that the Texas attorney general has brought forth in a lawsuit that's finally been unredacted. But, but they're going full fledged in, into the metaverse. And, and by metaverse, I mean, you know, building a self-contained Facebook virtual reality world, which we can unpack here. But my favorite part of this, Dan, is like, is not only, you know, can we imagine that, you know, Charlie Munger's students in his building will spend their days perhaps in a VR headset in the metaverse in their lightless dorms. But but also, you know, they'll be preparing for their jobs in the future in the Microsoft metaverse where PowerPoint and Word will await them in a virtual reality world. It's really amazing how the dystopia arrives very, very slowly and then all at once, don't you think? Uh, that's That seems to be exactly what it is. And the other thing that, it, you know, going back to the, to the Munger dorm for a second that it reminded me of is uh, – the worry-free company in um, oh, sorry, sorry to bother, bother you. you, absolutely right there. I mean, very on the nose. Yes, like live, live in, live inside your uh, completely uh, enclosed universe. We'll take care of everything, and uh, you can never leave. And we'll inject you for like horse DNA here to turn you into our slave workforce. Yes. Yeah, I wish that movie had done better. Uh, I think a lot of people really needed to see that. 
It is. It was a Boots Boots Riley. It was. It'll be. It'll be remembered as a cult classic, and it is like one of the most. Fan, I mean, truly fantastical magical realist takedowns of, you know, late late getting later capitalism for sure. But but back to the, back to the metaverse. I'm curious your take on that because I mean I have lots of thoughts on this and working on several projects, and I know multiple interested parties thinking about like the implications of both you know potentially the the Zuckerbergian metaverse, which is virtual reality focused, self-contained, like let's obliterate reality or right. you know, let's bring reality into that. And then there's the augmented reality metaverse, which I want to talk about too, which is the notion that like you're going to overlay data on the landscape. And Pokemon Go is really the starter gun for the potential, you know, benefits and dystopian side effects of that one too. But I don't know. I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, do you, does, does Zuckerberg have a chance? I mean, like, I mean, it seems like the reaction against it was vocal and total, but, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I suppose that he could quietly transition into an entirely different, well, I don't know if he can really do anything quietly come to think of it, but I, I mean, it seems like he's, he's completely cashed in his chips with the concept of Facebook and, you know, he, I don't think he's so naive that he thinks changing the name of the company is going to, you know, result in a giant public forgetting of everything that has come before. But I, I suppose if they start turning out products that people are actually interested in, uh, the public memory will become shorter. And yeah, we'll that, get a shot at it. You know, that part's hard, and no one can actually seem to do that. I mean, that that comes back to me. You know, the the metaverse, which as a design problem, particularly as a hardware design problem. It comes back to that. Can you actually build the killer piece of hardware? And and you know, you know, Oculus Rift, which they bought, you know, as their VR headset, is supposed to be that. It's not. Um, just like you know, Google Glass wasn't it ten years ago. Just like Snap, uh, Snap Spectacles hasn't been it. They're investing heavily in the AR version of this. I, if I had to bet, you know, if anybody cracks this, it's going to be Apple, of course, with uh, you know, supposedly with the Wayfarer size, you know, augmented reality glasses they're working on. But, you know, it reminds me of like of tablets, you know, uh, before the iPad, you know, I mean, people forget this now because it's been a decade, but like people tried for almost 30 years to build tablet computers. Jerry Kaplan wrote a great book about this called Startup uh, that was about the efforts in like the late 80s, early 90s to build tablet computing. And Moore's Law wasn't advanced enough to make it really feasible. And no one found use cases for it yet. The media ecosystem hadn't evolved. And by the time the iPad came around, you had both, you know, Moore's Law making it possible and YouTube existed. So therefore, like it became really a sort of streaming media screen anywhere you could take in the world. And that's what I think about like a lot of this stuff, like, you know, until you solve the nausea problem, VR, will it happen or or anything else? Um, and, you know, I, I guess my point there is like also like, you know, metaverse, like, like basic coin from the Neil Stevenson dystopian novel, let us not forget, you know, Snow Crash, uh, you know, here it is trying to actually construct an actual you know, virtual reality, complete and total environment. I was literally just watching, by the way, and then I'll, I'll stop because I'm about to like invoke like trigger, like like safety words here. But I was literally watching a conversation between Giannis Varoufakis and Slavoj Zizek, actually, in Ljubljana. Boy. Yeah, I know, exactly here. And it's funny because uh, uh, Giannis was actually making a comparison of Facebook. This was before the announcement, but he was comparing Facebook to sort of post-capitalist, like that, you know, that it wasn't even about markets anymore. They just owned everything. And he said as a thought experiment, imagine you walked outside from their lecture into Ljubljana and one person owned every single building in it. And not only, you know, there was no way to, to purchase anything. The person had the power to decide whether you could purchase your rights to any part of the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And I realized like without even knowing it, he was describing exactly what it is that Zuckerberg wanted to build. So, you know, kudos, kudos to Giannis for that one, who has actually spent time hanging around gaming companies and, and, and in Seattle and actually knows what he's talking about in that regard. 
Um, so there's that. I mean, I, I do, I do find this sort of interpolation between the the physical impact of the, the let's call it the meta world, uh, so that we're not confusing it with the metaverse branded prod, product. You know, the, the the virtual world, the Ethereum, the uh, you know the blockchain, the Bitcoin, um, and the the huge, huge environmental and physical impact that that has in terms of data center real estate and the amount of you know. Uh, energy that it consumes with these computers solving puzzles, uh, and then you you also look at um, you know the efforts of these predominantly what were predominantly software companies trying to get into physical space. Um, you know, in the in the case of you know Uber is going to have their you know uh, propeller copters, they're going to they're going to have their uh, their drone you know air taxis and supposedly Apple's working in a car in some kind of skunk works in the middle of the night, you know, uh, and then I just read that um, Google uh, just invested a billion dollars in the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and it's going to take their whole trading network into the cloud. And so what does it all mean? Uh, the convergence that's happening. Well, good question. I mean, I mean, part of this, so it's funny you mentioned the trading network because this is, again, Vera Fakos has brought this up in his talk too, that, you know, that this is, you know, basically like they, like, the platforms are trying to eat capitalism, like they're trying to internalize it, which is a whole other scary development too. But I would say well, what you're describing there, but you know, kudos to Brent Bratton and his book, The Stack, which is like, you know, if any of you tried to read it, I tried and failed. I don't know if anyone, you know, it's like the joke from David Lynch's Dune, they tried and failed, they tried and died. Um, that's how I felt about trying to read The Stack. But it was, it was Bratton's attempt to basically describe, you know, computation as planetary all the way down. And like, yeah, and basically like, you, as you described, those software companies are producing hardware. And this is a whole other project I'm working on too. Like this gets into the larger notions of where the city goes. And this is why like, you know, the, the Facebook thing to me is slightly a sideshow. Like I'm not sure it'll succeed and I'm not sure it's that interesting, but it's the augmented reality version that mm. terrifies me because there won't be a metaverse, right? Like, you know, there's no totality of the internet anymore. There's competing massive feudal kingdoms with compatibility issues. Like, the notion, for example, is, as Zuckerberg was saying that, you know, Facebook will allow their metaverse to be interoperable is just like the completest joke available. There's there's no way to extract anything out of the Facebook platform unless you attempt, you know, to delete your account, which, of course, is impossible. And they allow you to do a complete download of your profile that you will then never consult again. So that's about it. But but it's this augmented one that, that Pokemon Go pointed towards is, is the one that gets to me because this is going to be the overlaying of data and services on nodes in the urban realm. And the stuff that's happening now is not like the smart city that we thought of 10 years ago. It's not about prestige real estate with like augmented digital services. These companies are like figuring out how to find weird interstitial places and add value to them in ways that like are opaque to us. And like, mm. I go back, for example, to like when, when Pokemon Go happened in July, 2016, like when it was like a supernova, like uh, exceeded Tinder as the most downloaded app ever. Like I remember talking to a guy that weekend who was tweeting about his weird experiences. He lived in a deconsecrated church in Holyoke, Mass., which is one of the poorest cities in the state. And, you know, what he didn't know at the time, discovered later, is that Niantic, which is the company that built it for Pokemon, had used maps and, data and, and land records of places of worship as places to put the Pokemon gyms, which is where you go to train your Pokemon to basically dogfight. And so living in a deconsecrated church where the maps weren't aligned with the territory, uh, that whole first weekend, like 40 or 50 cars a night would drive up to his property and park there with their engines idling, with their lights on, and they would drive away after a while. And he realized, because he was a software engineer and knew what was going on, they were basically sitting there training their Pokemon. 
And I remember asking him, like, so what are you going to do now? And he's like, well, the first thing I'm going to do when my neighbors come home tomorrow night is tell them I'm not a drug dealer. And then, right. and then, but he raised the larger questions is like, what rights do I have when a software company completely overwrites the value and purposes of my property? Like, does it increase the value of my land? Does it decrease it? Like, what do we do then? And since then, Niantic had to, you know, take some measures there to, um, you know, put in buffers for companies that wanted to opt out. But like, but I think about this, you know, uh, you know, what, what will happen when there is a Harry Potter metaverse dropped on top of a Disney Plus metaverse, et cetera, et cetera, where there are magical objects in one metaverse and not in another? And how do cities, you know, enforce, for example, the streets? How do you prevent people from wandering out into traffic? Because there's also a study that came out of Purdue University uh, where, you know, some researchers there looked at traffic fatalities during the Pokemon Go craze. And then they, you know, they did a straight extrapolation from like quasi rural Indiana to the entire country, and they estimated that like basically 250 people died and seven billion dollars in property damage happened because people either were distracted driving or walked out into traffic because of Pokemon. What happens wow. when you take that to scale, right? And that's the thing that really freaks me out about the metaverse, metaverses, the the the, the uh, you know the multiverse as Marvel is training people to uh, to think about it on on Disney Plus. So, and so I here know. I thought the the worst thing that could happen would be somebody follows Google Maps so religiously that they drive off a pier uh, into into a harbor, which which did also happen. No, no, the worst is and like there's all sorts of great cases is like you know chasing you know Pikachu out into the middle of a hurricane because you know Pokemon Go doesn't actually you know correspond with the weather app, so that happens too. But but you know, but you're totally right about like you know the NFT space because like that's definitely part of like the metaverse, right? Like. This notion of like, you know, that we're all going to pay, you know, a million fiat dollars for, you know, for Ethereum uh, avatars, NFTs, you know, that'll be our avatar on various things is exactly what they're trying to do now. And yeah, you know, uh, uh, Vitalik, and I forget his last name, uh, uh, Buterin, I'm sorry, I forget, uh, who is, of course, the creator of Ethereum, uh, wrote recently a piece on crypto cities and the idea that, you know, looking, looking at the various efforts by both cities that are real um, Miami, of course, with Francis Suarez. Reno has created its own DAO. Eric Adams, the mayor-elect of, of New York, has just declared that he's going to take his first three paychecks in Bitcoin. Um, oh, so there's kidding the kidding me? No, no. Uh, I was going to say, someone, someone, the best post on New York is like, the SFification of the world is totally happening. Like the governor of New York is like anti-density and the mayor of New York-elect is like basically wants to do Bitcoin. Like SF has totally mind-colonized New York without them ever noticing. Um, wow. but, but, but there, you know, immediately pointed out that like, yeah, there's like the city DAO, like, like literally there's crypto bros who are out there going to try to build their own city from scratch and like create this. So, so I don't know, Dan, I'm, I'm curious, like your thoughts on like, maybe, maybe we can go about this all wrong. Like maybe we need to start a discord, you know, get a DAO, like mint some NFTs and just go from there, like issue some tokens. I don't know. You, well, you think they'll have a better chance than, than, than previous developers? What could go wrong? You know, it, it, yeah, it's 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 entirely possible, especially if you uh, if you think that you know that that ver the virtual is more fungible than, than the than the physical, which seems to be part of the conclusion. Without acknowledging, as I said, all the physical infrastructure that's required to support that. But this actually gets me to thinking about another thing too, which is that um, have you seen the plans for uh, Telosa? Oh, yes. Mark Laurie. Uh, yes. F f tell our listeners about Telosa. So Telosa is uh, going to be a, uh, a basically a, a, a city from scratch that would be developed by a guy who used to run the e-commerce division at um, Walmart. And he wants to um, build a new city that 
uh, in an unspecified location or locations, and that city would, uh, in theory, be socially equitable as well as environmentally sustainable. Uh, not to put too fine a point on it, that he wants to build something called the Equitism Tower as its centerpiece, and of course, none other than Bjarke Ingels is designing it. Well, of course, yes. And I would say, I, I will shout out to Josh Brustein, my, my friend and former neighbor who wrote the cover story for Business Week uh, about uh, Telosa. So Josh, you're listening. But but no, I mean, my, my favorite part of this is in addition to the awesomely cringeworthy scenes about Bjarke in that piece is the fact that like, uh, you know, Mark Lurie, to his credit, is, you know, the only instant city developer that I know of who's actually read Henry George and like wants to propose some like good old fashioned Georgist land taxes on there to do this. But but yeah, the, the real crowd close to me, you know, and there's renderings, of course, of like autonomous vehicles and other fun, fun stuff trailing down the street, is the fact that he wants to potentially build it in Nevada. I mean, I'm right. sure he could buy the water rights from somebody, but like you're building a city from scratch in the in the century of climate change and you really want to start in Nevada. He has another proposed site that would be somewhere in Appalachia, which I'm okay in that case, like now you're now we're talking. Like you want to try to do some sort of like billionaire-led economic development in one of the poorest regions of the country and you know, even then, which is incredibly climate vulnerable, the New York Times, Christopher Slovell did a great analysis of the fact that while, you know, a Maserati Joe Manchin, seeing he drives a Maserati Levante SUV, as it turns out. Um, Does he really? He, oh, sun, sunrise protesters uh, cornered him, and it turns out he drives a Maserati SUV. The, the, the joke describes itself on so many levels there, like, right? Like buying, like, the most finicky, worse, like, you know, foreign SUV you can. Maybe it's some... Sop to Chrysler Group. I don't even know, but like, but LOL, Avante. Um, but you know, but but as the New York Times pointed out, like you know, like you know, West Virginia is incredibly vulnerable to climate change too. Like you know, they can't pull back from the waters without having to build on the hillsides, which are then vulnerable to landslides. Like, there's no managed retreat going on there. Um, but you know, but like you know, but even then, like you know, the, that that would be a, a better primary. I mean, like that's a place, of course, where you know, and this is the dark joke. There is like you know, once upon a time during the New Deal. You know, they built the Tennessee Valley Authority. Now, you know, maybe Mark Mark Laurier will come here and build a private city from scratch. But, um, but you know, it it could be worse. At least he wants to build it. You know, under United States law, and like some of the various startup cities and crypto cities that are out there. That's true. It's not like a freetopia or the this the city that's supposed to go up out that's been bandied about for probably decades now um, on disused World War II silos off the coast of England. Oh, I believe, yeah, I believe there's some of that there, there off Jersey, yeah, or Guernsey, you know, the notion of offshore there. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I was thinking of this, you know, and maybe as a guest at some point in the future, we'll ask a, a Tusa Abrahamian to come on uh, as a guest. She's, of course, wrote the whole book Cosmopolites on citizenship and is writing a book on these kinds of like free zones. I mean, the ultimate version of what we're talking about, Dan, also announced recently is like Jeff Bezos, like basically wants to build in low earth orbit a mixed use business park, you know? Uh, at least that's how we sort of described it. I, I love that, like the most you know mundane form of perhaps any kind of development is what he thought of first for space. Um, but but as Atusa you know mentioned in an essay she wrote recently that like you know this, this, that kind of like offshore export processing zone is like that's always sort of the first thing built, right? Like you know like let's move the most polluting industries to space. Well, once upon a time it was like let's move them to you know Kentucky or Mississippi or Mexico or China, you know, and now. We're moving them to space. You know, there's always an outside somewhere there. So, so yeah, maybe, maybe that'll be it. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe the metaverse is that place. Maybe, you know, maybe a DAO is that place to do it. I don't know. I guess we'll, I guess we'll see. Uh, ye brave pioneers of logistics. It's all about logistics. 
Well, well, speaking of software, I'm, I'm curious if you'll this. The, the most interesting essay that I've read, you know, in the last week or so uh, was by Daniel Davis, and it was titled CAD's Boring Future and Why It's Exciting. And, you know, you're as the real architect here between the two of us. I'd be curious to thoughts on this because his, his overarching argument, and you know, we if we create some show notes for this, we'll leave it in the show notes, obviously, along with some other links to the fun stuff we discussed here. But his argument was is that basically like CAD software developed as this incredibly horizontal software where like you could design like a wedding ring with it and you could design, you know, an entire city from scratch with it. And he was pointing to, and I and I've got hinglings of this as well, of like, you know, like, you know, that instead of being really horizontal, the new generation of the software has become really vertical. Like he was pointing at like Saltmine, which I've seen, and Kanoa, which is an ex-WeWork guys. This is sort of like a post-WeWork diaspora of like really advanced, you know, building information management systems that were designed to like solve very narrow problems, but do it really well. Like like office layouts, like generate all sorts of like flex office layouts on the fly and, and other things like this. And I don't know, it, it struck me like that's sort of like the future where some of the software is going that like, you know, it's cheap, it's hyper flexible, and it's, it's evolving to solve these narrow problems really well. And I don't know, I, you know, and basically, yeah, his argument was that instead of trying to solve as Bjarke has done and Frank Gehry did with CAD, what, a generation ago, a generation and a half ago, um, trying to create like, you know, hyper unique structures like Patrick Schumacher has been trying to do with parametricism, like imagine the stuff gets applied to like just solving the more mundanity, the junk space, if you will, to borrow from REM uh, of the world. And I don't know, I'm, I'm curious, like as someone who actually had to like, you know, get strapped into a chair and use CAD for 14 hours a day, like, <laughs> You know, is that is that heaven or hell for you? What do you think? Um, well, you know, to be honest, like uh, I uh, I was never much of a CAD jockey, uh, and that's probably one of the reasons why uh, I was uh, the first to be let go when things were going more poorly for my uh, <laughs> architecture firm that I had joined, which had just opened up a branch office in uh, L.A. But their main cash cow was designing casinos such as the Paris. Uh, so they, uh, yeah, CAD really wasn't my, uh, wasn't really my jam. They, they but, couldn't really um, sweat the asset as much as they needed to there, huh? In this case, they the could not. Asset. And I was, I wasn't, I was a more expensive graduate student, you know, gra- or graduate student graduate, if you will, than the undergrads who had been, you know, slaving away amidships. So, uh, yeah, but I mean, I think that the, the, the 3D, um, you know, aspect is really, I mean, the, the, all that stuff building management systems, BIM, all that stuff evolved because of the the drawbacks of the, of the 2D approach, which was basically, it was very difficult to resolve conflicts between the increasingly devolved members of design teams. Um, so, you know, you had your, not just your structural and me- mechanical engineers, but people who, you know, specialize in wiring and raised floors. And, and as buildings became more complex, you know, they had to solve these multi-layered problems and so they came up with these you know 3d software to try to resolve make sure that you aren't ramming you know a rod through your uh heating duct well that, you know it's really interesting to put it that way because that was that was really like that's what davis calls out in his essay and this is what i know from talking to like various you know alumni of WeWork that you know that got purged um is that the company's the real the company's real technological legacy is the fact that because they were trying to like provision and deploy like millions and millions of square feet, like all at once effectively as part of their hyper growth strategy is that they actually did build entire systems from scratch to integrate all of those steps in a way that as you described there, like, you know, you described in 2d, but like CAD never really fully solved any of that either. Like there were other steps Mm -hmm. in, in the workflow. And so like they built horizontally integrated, they built vertically integrated workflow steps 
to try to deal with that sort of stuff. And now like, now, now they're out in the world, like they're productizing it in a way. So, so, so I don't know. So I think, I think it's interesting you, you, you solve that because it was never fully solved by the digital tools, but like now there's like a step change maybe to hopefully sort of solve that stuff. So, so I don't know that that's something that I've been following. Cause like, it strikes me as a real potential breakthrough there when it comes to the fact of like, you know, that in a post COVID world where, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, clients want hyper flexibility. We're seeing all the stories about like, you know, no firm wants to resign its old lease. They just want to keep mm. things are like as flexible as possible. Like that's the kind of thing where like, you know, if you're the building owner or, you know, or even if you're a tenant, like, you know, like figuring, figuring out like how much of are you going to change on the fly? How much is the building owner going to change on the fly? All, all these sort of questions are up in the air. And so I don't know. It struck me as really interesting. Like the, the shout, shout out to Davis, who I did not know. I saw it on Twitter. Um, but it struck me as like the best logical response I've seen to this in terms of like describing like how the software is evolving to sort of meet these needs. So, so I thought that was interesting. I, I mean, you know, to put a little bit of a happier spin on this whole, you know, metaverse monger discussion, you know, that we're, that we're orbiting around our, our two poles today. Um, you know, I, one could imagine uh, a totally immersive uh, version of let's, let's say BIM or Katia or any of the sort of 3d, design software where someone who is uh, planning, a, you know, an, a, an office space or a, uh, or a windowless dorm for the sake of argument, you know, wants to know what it be really, really would be like to occupy that space and then layer in all the systems and price out those systems and try to figure out the best configuration. You know, what do they do? Maybe they just strap on a headset and with some guidance from hopefully a professional architect, hopefully there's something left for them, for them to do, you know, they, they can say, well, instead of, you know, calling out and getting an estimate uh, and we'll come back to you in three weeks with, from our contractor, you know, they're going to say, well, we'll just pull out of this menu, stick that, stick this piping system over here, stick this HVAC system over here. And by the way, you know, we can put a window right there, but it'll cost you. And, you know, they could really feel the space, work the room as uh as Harvey Keitel uh, said to uh, Will Ferrell in the uh, the famous Blue Easter Cult sketch on SNL when he ran around with the co- with the cowbell. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, no. Other other cads, other cads are possible, Dan. And um, and, and other worlds are too. I guess uh, one that I want to leave with, since we're talking about like hopeful notes here, you know, we were talking about the metaverse. Um, the other thing I've seen, the most remarkable object or or media I've seen in the last few weeks. Uh, has been a video put out by Superflux. And if you know Superflux's work, um, uh, Anab Jane, she's the front woman. I forget her partner's name. Uh, he was there, but like, she's really the one who's, you know, she's the one who gives the TED Talks. Um, but they are like, they're basically like the best futures foresight design fiction agency out there. And they got a grant from, you know, from the Omidyar Foundation, uh, founded by, I believe, Pierre Omidyar, who's one of the eBay billionaires. Um, but it's called The Intersection. And it's, you know, it's their gorgeously rendered, you know, scripted by Tin Mon, who wrote Infinite Detail, uh, mm. imagining a sort of like collapsing version of, you know, of society, but then rather than just sort of end with a dystopia, because we can all sort of trace the strands of dystopia, it does sort of trace imagining like what a repurposed computing environment would look like and imagine like what other more utopian communities would look like. And it's, you know, it sort of takes it through it as, you know, it, 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 there are other short films that I used to say were like the best examples of like what, you know, augmented reality landscapes would look like. And they show that at the outset of the dystopia, but like, that they get back to about like taking steps back and imagining like how do we basically break free from some of the social media landscapes and i won't spoil it for any of you it's only 15 minutes long so you know if you listen to this well again we'll put it in the show notes but just to say there go to the dash intersection.io 
and um, and I'll throw that out there. But that's 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 my my pick of the week there, Dan. I don't know. I don't know if you have one as well. But what what would you leave our listeners with? Well, I guess I would leave them with a little bit of uh, tantalizing information. I'm going to hear about. Uh, in a in a few days' time, and I have to be a little bit careful because I've been involved in inviting these folks, and I don't know what they're going to say. But um, Sidewalk Labs are going to be coming fresh off of their their Toronto uh, experiments, uh, which didn't go so well because of the citizenry's uh, lack of interest in in surveillance. Um, but they are planning to do a mass timber prefabrication factory, uh, and they're going to tell us all about it, I'm sure, under NDA uh, on Monday. So I'm not sure what I'll be able to say about it, but maybe I can speak uh, cryptographically and, and in code and, and, and get across some insights. Interesting. Well, I said, we'll resume that. We'll pick that up in episode five because uh, I just became aware, too, of a, of a housing startup that I know that's trying to basically build a modularized factory out in Colorado as well. So, uh, you know, just as just as WeWork imploded and scattered its seeds in the universe, maybe yet another SoftBank investment, the, uh, you know, Katera, which of course I think built multiple cross-laminated timber factories before it imploded into chapter yeah. 11 or seven or whatever happened to, it. I think it's 11. Um, we'll, we'll see what comes out of that. So um, yes, I do remember, you know, if there's, if there's one takeaway that we had from Sidewalk uh, Toronto, it was those gorgeous renderings by, uh, by Thomas Heatherwick's studio. Always a weird unexplored relationship there. Uh, of the beautiful CLT towers they would have built there, so so perhaps you can have this. Perhaps you can have the wood without you know the uh, without the sensing landscape. So looking looking well, forward and, to see what you learn there. Yeah, and then to put leaves on the tree, so to speak. Um, the following day, uh, we're we're trucking up to Milwaukee, which will uh, surprisingly be the site of the world's almost next tallest timber building. It will definitely be the world's next tallest timber concrete high-rise building, a residential tower in Milwaukee, of all places. Uh, really interesting. Well, I would say as, as a final note of factoid here, is like he's a, a dude named Nolan Gray, who I think is a libertarian skewing urbanist on Twitter. I, have to go, I don't have his bona fides in front of me, but I think he might be George Mason affiliated. But anyway, he declared a, uh, a bracket of best cities in America, 64 cities, and the finals are New York and Milwaukee. So Interesting. As, a, as a former New Yorker, I would encourage you to go out there and vote for the Big Apple versus whatever, you know, unholy alliance of, you know, cheeseheads are out there. So obviously, obviously, I, and I bring this up only because it's like front page news in Milwaukee that a Twitter rando has, you know, catapulted Milwaukee to the top of this bracket. They did defeat Austin. So, I mean, kudos to them. That was the first round. So, and hey, you know, they've. Out. You know they've they've got the uh, they got the Deer District and uh, and Mater's. It turns out some pretty great German food, and you can uh, f- see a autographed photo of Gerald Ford who dined there. I, that's good to know. I've been to his presidential library in Grand Rapids. I had no idea that Gerald Ford just basically you know covered the great covered Lake Michigan from east to west with his with his presence. But there you are. So it's really his state. <laughs> All right. Well, that's all I've got for you tonight uh, here here in, uh, in, fr- in frozen Montreal. We're unfrozen here, but today was the first day of the freeze. Winter has come here to Montreal. You know, it's one thing that's occurred to me in this sort of own dark way here that, you know, I've told the boys that like, you know, that like when we were last year, we took a trip and we're going to reprise it this year to um, Mont Megantic, which is uh, a mountain which is ringed by smaller mountains uh, in far eastern Quebec, and by far eastern I mean near like the main border. But but it's nowhere near any 
urban center. It's, you know, near the wilderness of Maine and Vermont. And so not only is it um, no cell phone service for at least 30 minutes in the, from the park where we stayed, um, but also it's a darkness shed. Like it has some of the best sort of starlight. And we were there. It's also a, because it's a bowl of mountains. It also gets incredible snowfall. And uh, it just occurred to me at the time that like, you know, that like winter increasingly in the 21st century will become like incredibly luxury. Like, you know, if we consider present trends extended, like access to winter in a warming world becomes this, you know, insane thing. I, I, it reminds me of the Ray Bradbury story. I forget the name of it, where the, where, you know, the, where it rained every day or rained every, oh, all day, every year. Yes. And they lock the poor child in the closet and like the 30 minutes of sunshine and she's trapped in there. It's, it, it'll be like that increasingly for the rest of the world where like, you know, like seeing that snowfall will become increasingly a rare luxury for people. And it already happened in my lifetime in New York where there are entire winters where only one or two snowfalls, heavy snowfalls. Um, oh. Children would have to go sledding in like, in like the two inches of snow they would get for that entire year. Like that could become the norm. And that, yeah, that, that story like deeply traumatized me when I was a kid. Um, they made like a, like a cheesy TV movie of it, but it was I like, only saw the cheesy TV movie. I had to go read the story later. Exactly. Oh my God. Uh, well, yeah. So I guess, you know, snowfall and, and stargazing are both going to become our, our fungible tokens that will no doubt become precious commodities. Absolutely. I cannot wait to get the hash on that. And, you know, no one will. And if anyone steals my supposedly unstealable hash, I will just go crying to them that they should restore it to me as happened to that bro with his, you know, bored ape. So that's another story here, but you know, crypto living up to all of its promises. Um, uh, I'm going to go look for my hard drive in the snow now. There you go. All right. Well, on that note, let's wrap it up, Dan. It's a pleasure talking to you as always. 